Hello and welcome to Spec Speak Science, the Spec Certified Podcast hosted by Senior Application Scientist Patricia Atkins. In this episode, join Spec Certiprep as we look at the development of modern pesticides and how those pesticides function as pest management. We will examine the function, targets, and operation of chemical pesticides and their uses in modern pest control. With that, here is Patricia Atkins for this installment of Spec Speak Science. Today we're going to talk about the modes of actions of pesticides, so how pesticides actually work. When you think about pesticides, you have to understand it comes from a universal point of view. Every human and animal experiences, we want have our comfort and health. We don't want to be bothered by pests. And later, as agriculture started coming into play, then you had, well, I want to, to protect my crops and I, I want to protect what I'm doing, my efforts. But it all comes down to the different species relationships. So how pesticides work and why they work are because of species relationships. The three basic types of species relationships are mutualism, which it's a relationship that benefits both organisms. So like a bee and a flower, the flower gets pollinated, the bee gets the pollen. So this is a mutual relationship. Then you have a commensalism relationship. One organism's benefit, the other is not benefited, but it's not harmed. Something like an epiphyte or an orchid growing on a plant. It gets protection from the plant. It doesn't actually um, bother the plant or the tree, but the tree is not necessarily benefited from it. Then you have predation and parasitism, where one organism is benefited and the other is either harmed or killed. So this can be ultimately seen as uh, when you have a bird catch a fish or an insect, or you have a parasite or something like that. But in a broader uh, expense, it actually can be when you have an agricultural or husbandry process. It's a relationship that benefits the humans, but ultimately hurts the plant or hurts the animal. So in a way, agriculture and husbandry could be considered a predation. Its destructive relationships, though, are considered to be harmful to human crops or to humans themselves, and those are the ones that usually spar a pest control. The function of pest controls are either to repel the pest, so you stop an infestation, you prevent predation, or to eliminate a pest, you kill the pest or you destroy the infestation, or to alter the process. You stop it from being able to reproduce, you you regulate the, the rate at which it grows, or you disrupt the growth cycle. These Pest control management systems can be either biological, physical, or chemical. Biological controls usually use other organisms. There are three types of strategies for this. There's an importation strategy, where you have a native or a non-native predator introduced to an area without a predator. Now, in 1742, a, a botanist called Vermeer introduced lacewings into his greenhouse to, con- to combat a certain type of mite. So these lacewings then were a non-native predator and they would go in and they would eat the mites. A modern example is uh, we introduce a Chinese wasp to kill off a a boar that actually kills some different types of, of trees here in the U.S. Augmentation increases the native predator concentration. So if you think about your backyard and you have pretty mantis and ladybugs and they do a pretty good job of killing off your pests, but you're growing a garden and you have mites all over your tomatoes, you can dump a whole bunch of ladybugs or praying mantis in your garden and then they will then eat your your pests. You can actually go onto a garden shop and, and buy ladybugs or praying mantis. 
then conservation. It's increasing the habitat or conditions for a predator population growth. So this is where you know the ladybugs like a certain type of plant, so you plant lots of it to encourage them to come to those plants and then protect the other plants around it. You can also do co-planting. Some people do where they plant different plants together, onions with a different type of mint or some other herb in order to discourage the growth of, of different types of pests. You have physical controls, barriers, nets. That's why we put up screens. We have mosquito screens. You can have paint on waxes and oils. So if you have ants coming up, you'd paint on a wax, oil, or powder, and that barrier would then keep the pest away from whatever you're trying to keep it away from. You have removal. This is when you actually physically hand remove things, weeding, mechanical removal. You, you dig trenches around your, your crops. Environmental changes. You can use smoke, changes in temperature. You can dig ditches. Then you have what we consider to be the chemical controls. There are biocides. These are poisonous substances such as preservatives, disinfectants, and pesticides. They control organisms. They mostly organisms harmful to human or animal health, and they cause damage to products. You have a pesticide. It's um, any substance or mixture of substances intended for presenting, destroying, repelling, or mitigating a pest. It can be used as a plant regulator, a defoliant, a desiccant, and also could be used as a nitrogen stabilizer. Different biocide targets are things like microbes, fungi, animals, insects, plants. So all of these are targets of the different biocides. A microbial biocide could be something like an antimicrobial or a disinfectant. You use your hand antimicrobial, you squirt it a little bit on your hand, you're killing the bacteria, the viruses, and that's the target, the bacteria and the viruses. You have fungicides. They can ward off mold, like a moldicide, or different fungus. You have insecticides. To target things, if it's specific, it could be like a mite, so then you have a miticide. If it targets the eggs of a particular species, it's an ovicide. If it targets the larva of a species, then it's a larvicide. And then you have the animal biocides, the rodenticides to kill rats, the avicides to kill birds, the piscicides to kill uh, fish, or the predicides to kill off wolves and things like that, bigger predators. The most popular group of pesticides, though, are herbicides. I wonder if anybody really knows what the most popular pesticide in the world is. Well, it is the herbicides, and the most popular herbicide in the world is Roundup or glyphosate. The spectrum of pesticides could either be broad spectrum or non-selective, so it can kill a wide range of things, like it might be an insecticide as well as a biocide, as well as a fungicide, or it could be narrow spectrum. It only kills one small group, maybe like a rodenticide, it's a rat poison, that's the only thing it kills possibly. Early pesticides, things like DDT and organic chlorides, were broad spectrum pesticides. Nowadays, we try to find more narrow spectrum or selective pesticides. The application of a pesticide can be very important. The timeline and the delivery of it. Do you deliver it pre-planting, pre-laying? These are called protectants. So if you put on something like uh, you go to the garden store, you get this anti-weed pellets and you shake it over the ground that you've just prepped for your flower bed, you are trying to prevent the planting or the laying or the sprouting of seeds. So you want to get that uh, before it's even planted or, or laid, or pre-emergence, before it actually erupts out of the seed or erupts out of the egg. 
And then finally you have eradicants, which after it comes out, you kind of spray and kill. This would be your, like your ant poison or your fly spray or something like that. And then you have different roots which pesticides will be conveyed into the organism. It could be ingested. An insect will land on a leaf, it will eat the leaf, it will ingest the pesticide, and it will die. You have inhalation. It gets put into the air, it's breathed in, or it is inhaled, or it's brought in through the air. Or then you have absorption, where it is absorbed through the tissue, absorbed through the skin, absorbed through the, the top layer of the plant. You also have either contact, where the pesticide actually comes into contact and kills it, or systematic, where it starts to attack the systems of the organism's body or structure and break down those systems. Most uh, pesticides will target specific biological systems, be it neuromuscular system, the nerves and the muscles, a growth system, it can stop something from growing, the respiratory system, where it can shut down the respiratory system of a plant or an animal, or the digestive system, how it gets its nutrients. It can stop the processing of nutrients. This usually occurs along target pathways or processes. Most of them stop, limit, or control a chemical or neurological impulse or passage. And they often target certain locations either in the body or within a cell. Within a cell, it could target within the cell. It could stop ATP or ADP, the, the processing of energy within the cell. It could stop the synthesis of proteins or the absorption of proteins or enzyme synthesis. It could be, well, from the cell to outside the cell. It could stop the transition of water or ions or different, different chemicals in and out that need the cell needs to, to flush in and out of the cell in order to function. Or intracellular, it can stop the communication between cells. This is things like your neuromuscular junctions, the spaces between the, the nerves and the muscles, and it will inhibit impulses or block impulses. Then you finally have all the reactions that take place outside the cells. There's also a mode of action for pesticides. It could be an agonist. It binds to a specific receptor in a tissue or in a cell, and it activates a response. It keeps that response going. So, for example, there's something called a sodium channel of a neuron, and you have a, a sodium activate activation site. You have an activator as a pesticide. It basically is a straw that gets poked through that, that site, and it keeps it open, and it keeps that cell firing. Then you have an antagonist. It binds the receptor and blocks a response. So here you need a specific chemical to, to activate it, but instead you've put a wedge in that, or a, you've basically blocked that key, and now that, that cannot be unlocked, it cannot be used. This can disrupt the action of the cell, it can inhibit it, it can just block it. Then you have a modulator. This will control the rate of change of an action or a pathway in a cell or in a tissue. So when you need that tissue or that activator to be open, it's closed, and when it's needed to be closed, it's open. So it actually changes the rate. Physically, these can either mimic other natural chemicals. Uh, you've heard a lot, I'm sure, in the news about like bisphenol A and other endocrine disruptors. The reason why they're called endocrine disruptors is they're kind of like a universal key that fits into a lock that a specific hormone is meant to, meant to fit into. And because they have the same front end, they block the enzyme that's really supposed to be there from getting into place. So it disrupts those, those enzymes and those uh, endochromatic processes from happening. So they mimic a natural process or a natural chemical. 
you could have analog it kind of fits the same same space but it blocks it or you can have like i said the endocrine disruptors which is a physical barrier it just blocks that channel most insecticides are grouped into modes of action uh, or moas they could target nerves and muscles. You have your things like your pyrethrins, your DDT. They are neurological or neuromuscular pesticides. You have growth regulators, things like your uh, spiromephacin or your spirotetramat. They inhibit processes which regulate growth. You can have disruptors to respiration. These would be chemicals like organotin or some of the other uh, sulfurimids that stop respiration or, or inhibit respiration. And then you have different uh, reactions for non-specific parts of the body or in the gut and, and other places in the body where, or in other places in the organism where the pesticide will disrupt that process. A pesticide formulation is usually composed of at least two parts, an active ingredient and then inert ingredients. And this then creates the formulation. Your inert ingredients the ones that are not the active ingredients, the ones that basically bulk it up. These can be solvents, they could be substrates, they could be solids, liquids, gases, aerosols. They can be used to carry the pesticide. So if you're gonna spray it, it's, it's the carrier gas or the carrier liquid that it's sprayed with. It could be a dispersant, it could be a stabilizer. Your active ingredients could either be natural or synthetic. They could be inorganic compounds or organic compounds. So you can have a wide range of pesticide formulations. Then you have pesticide persistence. How long a pesticide will be around? How long does it exist in the environment? Uh, and how long before that pesticide no longer becomes a danger to you? Well, that depends on a lot of different factors, uh, two of which is its ability to be uh, biomagnified, which means how many levels up the food chain can this increase? Something like DDT is a biomagnifier. So you have it in the water at a very low concentration and then the plankton come along, they uh, absorb the DDT into the plankton. Then you have zooplankton come along, eat the, the plankton, and they now increase all of that DDT in their tissues. It's not excreted. The fish then eat the zooplankton, now it's increased uh, tenfold or a hundredfold up the chain until finally you get the birds and, and so on up the chain into humans where then you have a lot more DDT exposure because it keeps magnifying as it goes up the food chain. Then you have bioconcentration or accumulation. This is an individual's level. So you eat seafood and there's high amounts of DDT in seafood. Then every time you eat that, it is stored in your fat tissue and you repeat your exposure. So that's bioconcentration or bioaccumulation where the individual organism, by uh, getting it from different sources, then in increase it. Long-term or residual pesticides don't degrade real well. They tend not to like water a lot, so they're hydrophobic, so it means they don't get washed away real easily. They tend to be easily absorbed into organisms. And how long they persist in the environment can depend a lot on where they are. Are they sprayed in water? Do they get into the soil? Are they on vegetation? What was the concentration? What method or location were they delivered to? Some pesticides have very long half-lives. A half-life is how long it takes to get down to that uh, small percent or half percent of, of the life of that pesticide. DDT, for example, has a half-life in water from anywhere to 28 to 60 days. In soil, it can be anywhere from two years to two decades. In humans, it can be decades of bioaccumulation. Some of the most 
Persistent pesticides were some of the very early pesticides, DDT, lindane, paraquat, things like that. You also have some of the non-persistent pesticides, things that have like less than a 30-day half-life. These can be things like dicamba. Um, something like a linuron can be have a persistent half-life of between uh, 30 and 100 days. Uh, like I said, DDT, though, can have a very persistent half-life of well over 100 days into decades. When a pesticide is in the environment, it does um, become subject to decomposition and breakdown. This could be photodegradation. It could be degraded by light. Chemical degradation, where it's either oxidation or hydrolysis in the environment, or microbial degradation, the bacteria and fungus in the environment break down the pesticides. You can also have some reactivity. Unfortunately, sometimes the breakdown products of some pesticides are actually worse than the pesticide themselves. That's the case of dioxins, where you have an oxon formation of or organic phosphates. So you have a sulfur and a phosphorus bond replaced by uh, an OP bond or an oxygen uh, phosphate bond, such in like parathion and its paraoxon. So the actual uh, byproduct of the organophosphates is uh, definitely more potent or more dangerous than the actual product that started it. Then you have the, the question of some of our more debatable pesticides like DDT. DDT became uh, of a great importance through uh, World War I and World War II where it was used everywhere because it's a very good against disease vectors. It was good at combating against malaria and typhoid which kills about a million people a year worldwide. And in India when they first started using DDT there were over 75 million cases a year of, of malaria and over 800,000 deaths and that dropped precipitously to less than a million cases of malaria and zero deaths a decade after use. It was introduced in the 1950s. By the late 1960s, you had no longer had any deaths and less than a million cases of malaria. But it's very persistent, and it, it stays around a long time. It biomagnifies, so it becomes a, a pesticide with a, a good and bad side to it, but mostly it's been banned worldwide since the, the 1980s and can only really be found in India now. There's also an issue of pesticide compatibility. You can't just mix two pesticides together. Sometimes they can cause uh, different effects. You can add two of these chemicals together and they have a synergistic action. They can assist one another. They can have an additive action where you add one and it actually increases the potency of the other. Or you could have an incompatibility, an uh, antagonistic reaction. First, they might not mix. They might not be soluble together. Or they might cancel out each other's efficacy. So you add one to the other and it cancels out the effect of both. You can cause the two pesticides when you mix them together to cause a solid. Maybe you had two liquids, you pour them together, suddenly you now have a block of pesticide. Or it can have un unintentional toxicity where you mix these two together, you think it's mildly toxic, you know, pretty safe, but then you put them both together and you have a potentation reaction where now the toxicity is a lot more toxic than either one of the individual components. And usually that is not intended. So how much pesticide do you actually think gets to the target organism? Do you think it's 1%, 10%, 100%? So you, you're spraying uh, on a crop for a particular pest. How much gets to that targeted organism? It turns out that less than 0.1% of a pesticide formulation actually gets to the tor target organism. So that means 99.9% .9 are going to other places. They're going to the environment. They're going to other, other crops. So they're not actually getting to the pests that they were targeted for. So it makes us wonder, why are we using so much pesticides? 
I hope you have a better understanding on how pesticides work and how they function in the environment and how they function to control pests in our world. And I look forward to talk to you next time about another interesting topic in chemistry. Thanks a lot. Thank you for tuning in to Spec Speak Science. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find content similar to this, such as application notes, research studies, webinars, and more at specsertiprep.com. Please feel free to like and subscribe to Spec Speak Science wherever you find your podcasts. From all of us at Spec Certiprep, we thank you for tuning in and look forward to bringing you future episodes.